0: Conspiracy theories are not a new phenomenon. From Area 51 to JFK to the moon landing, conspiratorial thinking is as interwoven in the fabric of American history as stars and stripes are in the American flag. Hollywood even has a habit of casting conspiracy theorists in a heroic light. Randy Quaid's character in Independence Day was vindicated when aliens invaded Earth and he got to go out in a blaze of glory. The paranoid lifestyle of Gene Hackman's character in Enemy of the State is justified when he and Will Smith uncover a plot to increase the surveillance powers of intelligence agencies.
1: In your phone was a GPS sat-tracker, pulses at 24 gigahertz. I don't know what that means. It's like a low jack, only two generations better than what the police have. And what does that mean? Do you speak English? It, obviously not that well. You're kind of a jerk, aren't you? It means the NSA can read the time off your f***ing wristwatch.
0: And Nicolas Cage cracks clue after clue to discover a legendary treasure that's been protected for centuries by the Freemasons and the Knights Templar in National Treasure.
1: You think there is a treasure map on the back
0: of the Declaration of Independence? The map is invisible.
2: Why would we make this up?
1: Where's your proof?
2: We don't
0: have it. Riley, get down! Did Bigfoot take it? In the real world, conspiracy theories rarely pan out like they do in the movies, but that hasn't stopped them from becoming more prevalent and consequential in 2021 than they've ever been in American history. The January 6th Capitol riot was the result of months of unfounded claims that the 2020 presidential election was rigged. In February, Freshman Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene was stripped of her committee assignments, in part due to past comments decrying school shootings as false flag operations. And after a year that saw COVID-19 claim more than half a million American lives, a vocal, if not significant, number of people refused to get vaccinated for fear of being microchipped or an overarching population control plot. But we're not here to debunk any of those theories for the umpteenth time. We're here to talk about the proliferation of misinformation. I'm Scott Brown, and on this episode of UNT Pod, I'll be talking to experts from UNT's departments of psychology and communication studies to get a better understanding of the evolution, appeal, and effects of conspiracy theories, and to learn how to avoid falling down the rabbit hole so we can pull others out of it. Tempting as it may be to dismiss conspiracy theories and their believers, the consequences of false election claims, QAnon supporters getting elected to Congress, and COVID-19 misinformation cannot be ignored. And in the case of the Capitol riot, for example, it's important to keep in mind that many of those people truly and wholeheartedly believed they were fighting against a corrupt government to save democracy. So what is it that makes conspiracy theories so appealing? What do they have to offer that can convince a person to overlook facts and reason? Dr. Joseph McGlynn is a professor of communication studies at UNT who has researched the impact of misinformation campaigns in the fight against COVID-19. He said motivational bias is a significant factor in people's acceptance of conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories spread because people want to believe the information.
1: And when someone wants to believe something, that can be very powerful. And misinformation and conspiracy theories are most effective in getting out there, being spread when... They're articulating a belief that people are like, yeah, I want that to be true. And when you want something to be true, that's actually when you're most vulnerable to falling for misinformation or to believing a conspiracy theory. Now, often that reason is going to be politically motivated. You know, they have a worldview that they believe that politicians and unseen forces are pulling strings on world events. And so, conspiracy theories are really a way for us to explain world events, you know, in more simple terms. So COVID-19, why was that created? Well, it was a bioweapon from the Chinese government, or it was the cell phone, the 5G cell phone towers, or perhaps it was even Bill Gates wanting to microchip everyone in an elaborate scheme. And so these conspiracy theories sort of take root because people are interested in this concept. They usually distrust government leaders and authority sources and scientists in particular. And so these conspiracy theories are a way to explain events such as COVID-19 vaccine, not using science, not listening to authorities, but saying, ah, it's Bill Gates. Ah, it's, it's the cell phone. I knew there was something wrong there. And so oftentimes, why do we believe conspiracy theories? Because we want to. And that usually that desire often has a distrust of government and authority sources built in. And a healthy dose of political motivation that if you are politically motivated, conservative or liberal,
0: and the theory promotes one side or the other, you're much more likely to grasp onto those. UNT psychology professor Rex Wright echoed McGlynn's thoughts on motivational bias, but added that when presented with evidence that contradicts their beliefs, cognitive dissonance can drive people to dig their heels in and fall further down the rabbit hole.
2: One of the principles in cognitive dissonance theory is that once you make uh, a behavioral commitment, then the more information you have in your mind that's contrary to that commitment, then uh, the more uncomfortable you feel. So to the extent that I, I make a choice and there's a downside to that choice of which I'm aware, I'm gonna feel uncomfortable. That's called cognitive dissonance and to the extent we experience that uncomfortableness, then we're motivated to somehow effectively justify the choice that we made, somehow align our thinking with that choice, change our thoughts to make them fit the action. And so there's some really ironic effects that are implied by the theory and have been very well documented. So that becomes relevant because if you take sort of a, uh, an offbeat conspiracy theory, if it's sort of a fringe idea, then its fringiness is, is an argument for not buying into it. But if you, for whatever reason, make an initial commitment in that direction, then you should experience cognitive dissonance. And to the extent that there are reasons not to have moved in that, that direction and the direction of this fringe theory, then you should, uh, you should have this dissonance and be inclined to change your thinking to make it fit your action. And what that can mean in many circumstances is that people amp up their commitment to that point of view because in fact, it, it's fringy and there are you know very legitimate reasons not to be following this pathway. So part of that going down the rabbit hole can be a function of this driving motive of people making more and more extreme commitments that they have to somehow justify in their mind. And each time they make a, an adjustment, a mental attitudinal adjustment to reduce the dissonance, to, to accommodate this uncomfortable feeling, then you know, they just step a little bit farther out onto the limb. And pretty, pretty soon, they're really far out on, on the limb. But they have convinced themselves in incremental steps uh, that they are engaging in right behavior, uh, good actions, making good choices. But they have, have systematically moved themselves out in, in an extreme direction. And tying into that can be uh, leadership. I think it's very clear that that, uh, a leader can be a catalyst to get people to move in certain directions, and even making a choice to follow a leader can induce cognitive dissonance, because to the extent that the leader is flawed, then there are reasons not to, to follow that person, and so you experience this discomfort. Uh, And you try to reduce the discomfort by changing your thoughts to make it fit your action, which is to to follow the leader. So if you have a a leader who is plainly flawed and people freely commit to uh, not only voting for the person, but publicly embracing the person, maybe doing protests or or whatever, publicly declaring their commitment to this this leader, then the more flawed that person is, the greater is the dissonance, the greater is the, the ensuing commitment to that person to justify the initial commitment. And if there are relevant conspiracy theories, then that devotion to the leader can incline people toward initially starting down the path of the rabbit hole, but then getting deeper and deeper as well.
0: Wright went on to say that that ever-expanding commitment to an ideology, which can be driven by cognitive dissonance, has likely contributed to the sharpened divide in American politics today that leads each side to view the other as the bad guy.
2: It's not that we're all good people. We're all you know, good Americans, and we just, we're, we're working toward the same endpoints. We just have you know, different ideas about how best to get to those endpoints. I mean, that's the old style. Uh, The new style, where it's almost like uh, a Civil War mentality that has been nurtured now for decades, uh, because it's more than just we're all working to the same endpoints and disagreeing on ways to get there. It's that uh, there are good forces and evil forces, and the evil forces have to be destroyed. They literally have to be killed because they are taking us toward bad endpoints. And, uh, and then, of course, on each side, people see themselves as the good. They're good people, and they're fighting evil. It's a different way of framing political engagement.
0: In order to appreciate the recent rise in popularity of conspiracy theories, it helps to take historical context into account. An argument could be made that the roots of modern-day conspiratorial thinking can be traced back to the ancient myths and legends mankind used to explain what science could not at the time. If you saw something weird in the lake you couldn't identify, it must have been the Loch Ness Monster. If your neighbor's house got struck by lightning, he must have done something to upset the gods. According to Dr. McGlynn, our need to explain the incomprehensible evolved after the events in Dallas on November 22, 1963. So we look at the history of conspiracy theories, they're wildly changing, but the themes are distrust
1: in government and leadership type of sources. And and often a belief that events are coordinated and rather than chance or random. This notion that, you know, most conspiracy theories act on the concept that someone is pulling the strings and it's often for political motivations. I think a, a turning point, it was the JFK assassination and the Zapruder film. And that was really one of the first opportunities where people didn't really trust the government explanation. And whether it's because they didn't offer enough information or that people just weren't sure that they were getting the whole picture. When you have that uncertainty and you're not sure you're getting the whole picture, people are gonna fill the details in themselves. And with that distrust of government or authority sources, that really plays right into the JFK conspiracy theories that
0: it wasn't who they said it was. And the next step in the evolution of conspiracy theories took place in the age of the internet and social media. That is a game changer for not
1: just misinformation, but all information, the ability to communicate. If you look at what happens when we have social media, all of a sudden, everyone is a published author. Go back 20, 30 years, you couldn't just get your beliefs out there. You couldn't just post them anywhere. You would have had to get a book contract or own a printing press and distribute it somehow, person to person. But with the internet and with social media, these conspiracy theories and any kind of information can get spread faster, farther, more broadly to more people in less time. And that is a real game changer for how information spreads and how quickly it spreads. You fast forward to something like Pizzagate or some other more recent you know, COVID-19 misinformation campaigns are, are certainly on the radar right now, You know that those really were able to use social media to get their foot in the door. And so why does this happen? This notion of it it's harder, I think now, it's both harder and easier to get things into the national consciousness. You think about the JFK assassination, that was multiple years that that took root in the national consciousness. And now everyone's aware of these sort of conspiracy theories the are film, and these sorts of influences, but now it's easier to get a conspiracy theory out there, but it's also harder because there's more
0: competition and there's a lot more information out there in general. And so it's both easier now and more difficult now than it used to be. With so much misinformation and various conspiracy theories out there, how do you differentiate fact from fiction? When it comes to questionable theories, Dr. Wright suggested taking a scientific approach.
2: So I would approach any idea in the same way that I would approach a scientific theory that might be proposed. The first thing I do is ask myself, is it logically intact? Uh, You know, does A lead to B and all that sort of thing? Or, or Are there logical errors here that people are just... Uh, overlooking, or perhaps they're just standing out like sore thumbs, but they're not sophisticated enough to recognize. So is it, is it logically intact? And another thing that I think sometimes people don't think about is, is it falsifiable? Is it something that could be disproved? Is there anything that you could present a believer in the theory that would persuade that person that it wasn't, in fact, true, and if the theory is such that it could incorporate any, <laughs> any argument, any piece of of uh, empirical evidence, then that's that's a problem because it, it you know there are a lot of uh, possibilities out there in the world. I mean, life is filled with possible processes and and possible realities. That, that simply can't be tested. We'll never know if they're right or wrong. You know, there, there are endless theories that people could weave that are conceivable. They're even rational. But if you can't test them, then they, in my mind, they just have to go in, into that, that large heap of ideas that are just possibilities. It could be, but we'll never know because there's no way to test this theory. So, so that's another consideration that I always weigh in on. First, is it just logically intact? Is it a rational theory? Is it somehow flawed? Uh, but if it's logically intact, then the next one is, is it falsifiable? And 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 if the answer is no to that, uh, then i I usually just set it aside. Uh, if the answer is yes, that it, it, it could be tested, uh, that, that, that there is evidence that you could bring to bear with respect to implications of the theory, then I start looking at all the relevant evidence and I ask myself, does the evidence fit? And so if somebody brings me a, a, a fringe theory, uh, those, those are kind of steps that I, I personally would go through. I would I would ask, Is it rational? Is it testable? And if it's testable, does it comport with the evidence that we
0: have available? Another tactic for verifying information, according to Dr. McGlynn, is to verify the sources of the information and consider how widely that information is being reported. Well, let's look at some of the qualities of misinformation. And the first one is that misinformation
1: often attributes its its information or its details to an unverifiable source you know someone that they know someone told me a friend on the inside and so if you're getting information about covid-19 or whatever it might be election fraud or what it might be and it's someone someone from the inside told me or i know people who know these non-verifiable sources that should be a flag warning sign hey i've got to raise my suspicion i've got to raise my skepticism for misinformation here because they're not telling me exactly where the source is. I can't verify the source. And if you can't verify the source of the information, that is a sign that you might be being presented with misinformation. The second one is that misinformation often uses non-specific authority sources in their messages. So some research that I've worked on with COVID-19 misinformation, we found that Misinformation tweets related to COVID-19 were much more likely to use non-specific authority references, something like a doctor friend or top medical officials suggest. These are not verifiable. If someone says, I heard this from a nurse in the ER in New York City, and they told me these sorts of claims, this reference to an authority source, in this case, medical officials or a doctor friend or a nurse, those authorities are usually people that we trust. And especially when we have uncertainty, we look to trust authority sources. But misinformation takes advantage of this tendency for us to trust authority sources and uses it against us by leveraging these non-specific or non-verifiable authority sources. So if you read something and it's attributing it to a non-verifiable source, that's number one. And if that non-verifiable source is an authority cue, such as a doctor or a nurse or someone that should seem trustworthy, but you can't verify who, they're not saying who the nurse is or who the doctor is or who the top medical officials are. They're just saying in the abstract, that should be a real flag, a real warning sign to raise your skepticism that this information might be politically motivated and not accurate in that sense. And why does this happen? Well, when we have uncertainty, and you think about COVID-19, we have so much uncertainty, especially in March of 2020. No one knew what was going on. No, you know, We weren't sure where it was coming from or just how contagious or how to stop it or anything. We had very little information, a lot of uncertainty. And when we have uncertainty, we tend to trust and look to authority sources to guide the way we think, the way we act. This makes a lot of sense. For the most part, authority sources such as doctors are, are great guides. But misinformation takes advantage of that. And they say, okay, people trust doctors, especially in times of uncertainty. Let's flood the timelines with references to doctors who are spreading uh, false information or false beliefs. For instance, the notion that if you can hold your breath for 10 seconds that you don't have COVID. You know, that's that's not really harmful on the surface because you're, you know, okay, well, I thought I didn't, but I do, but that sort of self-diagnosis that's incorrect can really have a lasting ramifications. If someone says, oh, I don't have it. I was able to hold my breath for 10 seconds. And then they go out and they hang out with a bunch of people and then spread it to those people. That's how COVID-19 and other viruses spread amongst people. And so you think about misinformation, you think about conspiracy theories, they're often using these authority sources, these non-specific, non-verifiable authority sources. That is sort of their cue to get you to believe that what they're saying is true. Because when we have uncertainty, we do often look to authority sources to guide our behavior. You know, the other thing I'll tell you about vetting misinformation is you want to look for multiple sources. So first step is understanding how misinformation strategies work and the types of strategies they do, such as just one strategy would be referencing authority sources in their information. But the second thing to do if you want to vet it, so look out for those to raise your suspicion, but also look for multiple sources that are reporting information. If you can only find one source that's reporting something, that's not usually a great sign for its credibility. If you can find two, three, four news or media sources that are reporting something, that's going to increase your confidence in the credibility of that information. So if you're not sure, if you're presented with information and you're not sure if it's false or true, at least going to multiple sources to see
0: if multiple people, multiple organizations are reporting this, that can be a great way to vet information. One of the most widespread consequences of the rise in conspiracy theory acceptance is the social impact. If you have a friend or loved one who's gone too far down the rabbit hole, The simple act of having a conversation can become challenging because they might habitually steer the topic to their newly adopted beliefs. There are even support groups for individuals who have quote unquote lost a loved one to conspiracy theories. One method Dr. McGlynn suggests for dealing with someone who's become obsessed with conspiratorial thinking is to convince them to take a break from their media or sources of information, similar to a detox approach. There's a concept called the mere exposure effect. And... The mere exposure effect argues
1: that just being exposed to information, the merely exposed, you might say, just being merely exposed to information or a belief or a theory, just having someone tell us about it makes it a little more likely for us to believe that it's true. And now if we're being exposed to a belief over and over and over repeatedly, we're seeing it from multiple sources, multiple places, that exposure just, you know, I'm not sure if it's true, but maybe I hear a lot about it. Maybe it is true. I can't say it's not true. I definitely hear a lot of people saying that. And so when you look at your media sources, if someone is watching the news networks or listening to the radio and getting this information, just being exposed to these conspiracy theories that are being peddled on some networks, that just mere exposure can have effects because you're at least not sure and you're you're confused if nothing else. And that, that, that in itself is a goal for misinformation conspiracy theories, distrust of authority sources, distrust of scientists, distrust of leaders, and turning off the exposure faucet is probably going to have lasting benefits in this way. And it is really true. We have to pay very careful attention to what information we allow ourselves to be exposed to because our mind automatically, when we, you know, our default is to believe everything we hear. If I ask you how's your day going and you say good or well, who am I to say you liar, that's not true. If I ask you what you had for breakfast and you say a bagel, I say false, We don't do that. Our default is to believe someone and to believe what they're saying is true. But this works against us on say social media. Because if if we're believing everything we're reading or our our friend did this or a family member did this or they went here, they're posted this for a moment, we're in a mode of believing things. We're not in a mode of being skeptical. We're not in a mode of being suspicious. And so misinformation is on our newsfeed and it kind of just fits right in. I'm believe, oh, here's what one person said. Here's what another person did. Oh, here's a claim from someone I know or a related source. And our default is to believe that information. And so we actually have to go against our own tendencies, especially when we're online. I always recommend to people go in with a healthy dose of skepticism anytime you're reading online. And especially if it's in times of a global crisis, such as the COVID-19 pandemic or, or any other crisis type of situation. When there's a lot of uncertainty, that's when you actually have to be the most skeptical that... Not everything you read is going to be accurate, even though that is our default, is to believe things that people say. It's called the veracity effect or sometimes the truth bias that we believe people when they're talking. But when it comes to times of crisis and we have uncertainty, we actually unfortunately have to turn that tendency off and go in instead being skeptical, go in with a dose of suspicion that not everything we read will be accurate.
0: While acknowledging how challenging it can be to change someone's beliefs, Dr. McGlynn recommended approaching conversations with a healthy dose of patience and looking for ways to motivate the person to think through their beliefs.
1: When it comes to persuasion, once someone believes something, it's so much harder to get them to change their mind than if they had no beliefs at all. If someone is neutral about a topic, well, persuasive you know, logic or arguments, those can be really effective when someone is neutral. But if someone already has an opinion, <laughs> when they're already sure about something, it's so difficult to try to change their opinion. And you can only persuade people to do things that they want to do. And people do not want to change their opinion, <laughs> right? So that that's, it's an uphill battle in the sense. When I say people don't want to, you can only persuade people to do things they already want to do. If I'm trying to encourage somebody to eat healthier and I say, hey, you should eat healthier. They're like, I don't like eating healthy, right? So that's not gonna work. So I would have to sort of persuade them something that they might be interested in doing. They're not interested in eating healthy, but maybe they're interested in living longer. Maybe they're interested in being healthy later on in life or having greater muscle development or something like this. You have to find something that they do want to do. Now, when relating that to misinformation, if someone already believes something, it's very difficult to uproot that belief, but you have to sort of tap into this notion, maybe get them to be like, well, you do want to be, have a strong social reputation. And if they're sharing this information, that might hurt their reputation. That might hurt their credibility with their friends. And that might be something that they care about. And so just advocating for a, a pause, asking people to just don't share the information if you're not sure that it's true and ask them to take a minute, pause and deliberate. Why am I sharing this? Why do I think it's true? And just asking them to pause, that can actually be very powerful for reducing the spread of misinformation. The other thing I'll say is when you have loved ones or family members and they they have a belief, a conspiracy belief or something like this, you have to create dialogue. You know, you just telling them that they're wrong is not gonna do anything. You know, that's probably only going to strengthen their resolve in this way. And so you want to open the doors for dialogue as best you can and ask people to think through and logic their way through these beliefs and this information and why they're choosing to support it or to believe it. And that line of conversation would be what I would suggest
0: for family members, because it's very difficult to change people's minds once they have a belief. Dr. Wright advised that exhibiting and encouraging humility can help conversations be productive, but also said it's important to recognize the potential futility of the effort.
2: One observation is that if people are far enough gone uh, in, in a, a certain line of thinking, the odds that you're going to in any way pull them back are not, not strong, because they're just way out there. And their reality becomes so different from what you would consider to be reality, that the gap is just massive. And furthermore, you, you always have to bear in mind that there's this motivational element that operates where people, if they, if they especially get fringy extreme, you know, sort of uh, away from the mainstream uh, of thinking, they can become motivated to defend that point of view. And so if you have a discussion with that person, you can think, all right, we're just going to have a civil discussion. We're going to exchange ideas. We're both motivated to try to ascertain the truth. And so this is going to be productive. And all too often, what you find is it's not only not productive, but it's counterproductive because what happens is people are at least one party, sometimes both, are defensive. And they're not really interested in determining the truth. What they're interested in doing is defending their point of view. And so while your mouth is moving and you're talking, they look like they're listening, but really their mind is racing, just figuring out the next point that they can make uh, to defend their position. If the person is far enough out there, you just have so much ground between you in terms of perception of reality, that it's almost a futile effort. And the futility is just exacerbated by these motivational dynamics such that both parties aren't even trying to determine the truth. They're, they're trying to defend their version of the truth. Now, if somebody is not that far out there, but maybe pushed in a direction where they're perhaps, let's say, sy- sympathetic to a point of view, then you know there's potential. And I think one of the first things one would have to do in a discussion is proceed the discussion with an urging for, for all parties involved in the discussion to really try to just figure out the truth, to be open to the possibility that they may not be perfectly correct to be humble and it, it, you know one could do that in ways i think that make that pill easier to swallow where you you recognize that none of us has a premium on the truth that that all of us are you know are, are just doing the best we can to figure out how things are and how things work if you start on that assumption that we're all human, that, that, that we all are, are just working toward the truth, none of us has a premium on it, and that we can really learn a lot if we listen to one another in an honest, open way. So if you have somebody who's part of a group discussion who is not extremely uh, distant from some, some sort of middle point, and you you encourage effectively somehow uh, openness and humility and, and uh, understanding that nobody has a gold standard on truth. Then I think you have potential uh, because you can present arguments. Uh, you can raise the question: Is there anything that you could be shown if, if you're talking to somebody who holds a particular political point of view uh is there anything that you could that could be said or any anything you could be shown that would would change your opinion at all and if the person just answered flat out no then i I would stop the discussion because that person is saying there's no way i'm changing
0: The subreddit r slash qanoncasualties is an online gathering place where family members of conspiracy theorists share their stories and support each other. For UNT Pod, I'm Scott Brown. Thank you for listening.